just then, just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he was let and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know your going out and your coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out of David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died. For the blood of Ashahel, his brother, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who, is, who has a discharge, or who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abashi, his brother, killed Abner, because he had put their brother Asheel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab, and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and, ga- and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept, and the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen." And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. And everything that the king did pleased the people, so that all people in all Israel understood that the day it had not been the king's will put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Children ages three years to kindergarten are now dismissed for the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Let's worship the Lord over the word and ask his help as we seek to see Christ from 2 Samuel 3. Pray with me, would you? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, in the precious name of our King Jesus, the Lord and Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you minister to us through your word as you've ministered to us through prayer, through reciting glorious truths, through singing, and shortly through fellowship around the table, and conversation. All these are great graces to us that we take not for granted because believers around the world 
as was just prayed, are in danger. They're oppressed and afflicted just because they bear the name of Christ. It may well come one day soon, Lord, that we too will be afflicted just because we love you, just because we've been called by your name and we find your gospel precious and we find your name glorious and we find your truth absolutely securing and rock solid and hope giving and we find your word flawless from cover to cover in every mark and syllable and we find your glory the cause worth living for the cause above all causes and we find suffering for your glory an honor and a privilege Draw near to those who need to see Christ, each one of us today from 2 Samuel 3. And as we see Christ, win to yourself those who've never seen him before. Strengthen those who are weary and tired and confused and struggling in their hope in you. Give faith to those whose faith is smoldering like a wick and it's barely burning. Light it into a white hot flame again by this passage. For those confused, give them clear lighthouse direction from this passage. For those guilty, remind them of the grace that's ours in Jesus Christ and wash over them waves of forgiveness. For those ready to be sent, give them direction beyond what they could have asked or imagined from a passage that to our small minds often feels so obscure. But here you are, Lord, standing forth from your living fixed, inerrant, holy word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh, speak, Lord, now, and achieve 10,000 more things than I know to ask for. In Christ's precious name and for his glory, I pray. Amen. We're trekking through 2 Samuel, and we're in the second half of 2 Samuel chapter 3, as Ed just read today. This passage is all about the interplay between Joab, David's nephew, and King David, who is now newly crowned king of Judah. Not all Israel yet, but it's about to happen. What you'll see from this passage is that life is war. Life is a battle. It's a war. To think it's not a war is to be constantly disappointed and frustrated that everything seems to be going wrong. If you think that everything's going wrong all the time, maybe it's helpful to realize that just like in David's day, so as in Christ's day, the greater David, so also in the day since and today, life is war. Whenever the king of glory in all his goodness, holiness, and righteousness comes to earth to encounter sinful people like us who are depraved in every way, We're so depraved, we don't even have the capacity to feel and see how depraved we are. Some of us think we're making progress. I used to think by the time I was 50 years old, I'd really be holy. I did. I used to think that. I can't wait till I'm 50. I'm just going to have all this sin stuff over. I'm 61. It hasn't even begun to happen yet. Life is war. Because holiness encounters the sin of dark hearts like mine and yours. So it's no wonder that when Luke is writing to record the ministry of the advance of the church in the first century under the Apostle Paul, 
He talks about what Paul's life was like so that the churches who read the book of Acts, the writings of Luke, and who, who saw Paul's ministry and read his letters would say, oh, it's going to be like that for me too. Life is war and it's going to be hard. Listen to what Paul encountered. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. Pick up a rock. Everybody get rocks. Because that guy coming, the one who's talking about Jesus, we're going to kill him with our rocks. That seems smart for them to say. It seems smart for some people to talk like that today. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went in on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Your soul needs to be strengthened, disciples. You need to be strengthened and steadied and your spine steeled so that you can stand against the evil that's raging against you. Not just the evil of other people, that's part of the issue, but that's the smallest part. The evil of the world and the spirit in the world, the evil of the demonic forces which are very real our struggle is against flesh and blood and the evil that lurks within your own heart strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith don't give up your faith resolve now before the end of your life on this earth you will not give up your faith and saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God Acts 14 22 Life is war. To be faithful to the missionary call to go to the end of the earth takes war. To be faithful to raise your children in the love and admonition of the Lord takes war. To be faithful to conduct your marriage and your own walk with the Lord that denies sin and the flesh and the temptations of the enemy takes war. There's a mean streak in Christians who are faithful to the end. Not against other people but against sin. This place as a church, as we always say, is to be the safest place for your soul and the most dangerous place for your sin. It's plain to see from reading 2 Samuel, especially here in chapter 3, that life is war for King David. Life is war for all those who are related to him, married to him, children of him, relatives of his within his army. Right now in this time history of 2 Samuel chapter 3, there's civil war raging between Israel, ten tribes under Ishbosheth. He's the son of Saul. Saul's now dead. And Abner's kind of the one pulling the strings. You know so many governments have puppet presidents, right? Somebody else is pulling the strings. Hand in the back, blah, blah, blah. That's what's going on. You know what that's like. David has a nephew by his sister. His sister had three sons. Asahel, Abishai, and Joab. We're going to look at Joab, David's nephew, today because the story, the account, the narrative puts Joab front and center. We're supposed to see glorious things about David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the interplay between Joab and David. Watch so closely 
and, and imagine what each other is thinking while these events unfold. We're going to look at Joab and David's life not just because we're going to say, here's a historical study in the Bible and we're just going to step back and watch the biography of their lives unfold in this episode and learn lessons. That's not merely what we're going to do. That's a human interchange and a human exchange and enterprise. It's not what we're up to. Rather, what we are up to is to say, Lord, I want to see Christ in this passage. I want to see the gospel stand forth from David and Joab's interchange so that it might touch my life the way I need to hear from you right now today. First, Joab, you can see three things that happen in his life. On display, Joab's young, impetuous, warrior identity shines forth, or, or should I say, is, is uh, disclosed in jealousy, pride, and revenge. Jealousy, pride, and revenge. You might remember from the previous part of this chapter that there was a battle between Abner and the Israelite army, David and Joab and his Judah army. And in that battle, one of Joab's brothers, Asahel, was killed. Killed in a manslaughter way by Abner. Abner didn't mean to kill him. He used the butt of his spear. Asahel was chasing him, running fast behind him. He held out the butt of his spear and it killed Asahel. Initially, Joab and his other brother Abishai, they gave mercy to Abner, let him go. But now, Joab is seething with anger. It's so easy, isn't it, over time to think about wrongs that have been done to you and to rehearse them in your mind over and over. And they don't sting less, they sting more. And it almost feels right and good and just, even healthy. You might even have someone encouraging you to do this, to develop a resentment and a bitterness against those who have wronged you. I've struggled with this. It's unholy. It's malicious and cancerous. And it's toxic. Joab is doing this right under the surface of the passage. Abner was, in fact, a manslayer. He had killed Asahel. But he comes to David, and we saw last time that he actually knows David is God's man, and he comes actually eager to join in league with David to, to as it were, receive mercy from him. And what does David do? David offers mercy to Abner. He, he says, let's make a covenant of peace. And four different times in this passage, David says to Abner, the one he used to fight against, hand and, and, and tooth and, and nail, he says, I'm going to make a covenant of peace with you. And I'm even going to eat with you. And I'm going to welcome you into my kingdom. And it was, of course, a way for David, David to bring into unity Israel and Judah together. And it looked like it happened according to the previous paragraphs that we studied. Now, Joab returns from having fought as a warrior, bringing spoil back, and he hears that his king and commander, David, his uncle, has made peace with Abner, his enemy. Look at verses 22 and 23. You'll see Abner, jo Joab's seething anger on display. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had 
sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. This infuriates Joab. What wells up within him is pride, jealousy, and revenge. You can see it so plainly in the verses that follow. Pride is on display because Joab doesn't go and talk to the king uh, and set a plan. He goes to correct his uncle, the king. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then Joab sent to the king and said, or went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's gone? In other words, Joab is saying to David, you should have killed him. He's our enemy. Remember, he killed my brother, your other nephew. And he used to fight against us in seven-year war of of blood and, and violence. You should have killed Abner. That's what Joab is saying. Verse 25, you know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. I'm smarter than you, King David. I'm smarter than you, uncle. You don't know, but he was coming in to try to trick you. He was trying to get military intelligence from you. You should have seen through it. I'm smarter than you are, king. He also is filled with revenge. He remembers well how Abner has killed his brother Asahel. So look at verse 30. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. You can see it again also in verses 26 and 27. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. He didn't get permission to do this from David. He's not acting as a good general here. He's not in obedience to the king. He's got his own plan. He's going around the king and around the king's ways and word. And they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. So Abner had left in peace. He went about two miles away to a a well to get water. Joab finds this out and he sends messengers to go bring Abner back. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Joab acted, thinking he's smarter than David. He went around him, and he's acting in revenge to kill him. And he's acting in a way that is on display his jealousy. He doesn't want Abner, the older, more experienced general, to take his place in the army of David. So he's not only violating Abner, killing him in cold blood right inside the gate of the city of Hebron. He's also violating David, his king, by not following the king's lead or example or word. And he's also bringing about his own demise in this act. We don't have a record of Joab ever spiritually returning to the Lord after this passage. Joab makes a decision here that he refuses to repent of. There is forgiveness for the act of murder. There is forgiveness for all sin. Joab refuses it. Look at verses 28 and 29. Afterward, when David heard of it, He heard of Joab's killing Abner. He said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. 
David said, I didn't order him to do it. Then David says in verse 29, May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. You might remember from reading those curses or that collective multifaceted curse, you might say, where have I heard that before? Where does that come from? It comes from the Old Testament Torah. It's the curses declared down upon anyone who rejects God, rejects His word and mercy and grace and does not believe in Him, but walks in disobedience to the covenant. David brings that down upon Joab, his own nephew, after Joab kills Abner. When you have a discharge or are leprous, you're disqualified from going into the temple to pray. When you hold a spindle, that means you're lame and you're walking with a crutch. You fall by the sword, that means you've lost a war, you lack bread, you're impoverished. The history of Joab is to have people always in his line who suffer these things. Unless Joab would repent exactly what Moses said in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. As the Lord, the Lord passes in front of Moses, and Moses sees, the Lord tells Moses his name, I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Receive mercy for your sin, brothers and sisters, friends in the hearing of my voice. Receive mercy for your sin. Don't let your heart become like Joab and grow hard and resentful and bitter. Receive the mercy that flows from the throne of God purchased by the Son of God hanging on the cross. We don't know whether Joab repented or not. We can hope he did. If he did, he was forgiven. And he is forever with the Lord. If he did not, he was not. We look to Joab and see how the kingdom of God is not served by sin. The kingdom of God does not move forward when we say, I'm going to bring vengeance against my enemies. Justice won't be served unless I bring vengeance against my enemies. And that's how the kingdom is going to be set right. No, no. In fact, the Bible says plainly, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Whatever situation or whoever you are tempted to bring justice for yourself, give it over to the Lord right now. Give it to Him right now. Don't, if you carried it in here, don't carry it out. The kingdom of God does not come by jealousy. It doesn't come when we're furious that someone else might take our place. Oh, the joy of learning the humility to decrease while, while Christ increases. And then our joy is full, says John the Baptist. 
The kingdom of God does not advance by pride. I know better, David. You've got a plan. You showed mercy to Abner. I think you ought to have killed Abner. I'm going to go take care of it. I know better than you. I'm not even going to talk to you about it. I'm not even going to let you know about it. I'm going around the king. Beware of any time you want to speak or act or feel that skirts around the word of God. When a man or a woman... When a, when a person begins to raise their voice in anger and they're shouting harshly at another person, when they know the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath, that person is saying, I just know better than you, God. When a person gazes with lust and covetousness on another person or things or circumstances, knowing that the Bible says we're to put to death covetousness and impurity and passions in Colossians, we're simply saying, I know better than you, God. Joab's pride said, I know better than you, God. I can fix this kingdom that you're putting in place. I can set everything right. If I just get my messengers to go get that Abner guy back from the well, get him to come back to the gate. The gate is where all important acts of justice happen. That's where I'll do it. And he's coming back into the gate. I'll take him aside and I'll be clever about it. And everything will be better if Abner's dead. No man, no problem. We are not always wise enough to see how sin in the world, sin in the demonic forces, and sin in our own hearts can twist and distort our thinking. It, it distorts our face our mind, our soul, so that we look at the circumstances around us and we say, I know exactly what needs to happen. I need to sharpen my knife. I need to get Abner alone and I need to kill him. And then everything will be fine. Woe to Joab for not having someone come alongside him and look in his face and say, you are plotting dark things. Stop right now. I'm going to get in your face and get in your way and stop you from plotting murderous, evil things. He killed your brother. I'm sorry for your loss. Don't take it out in an act of sin against him. Hand him over to the Lord, Joab. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. I've resolved in the twistedness of my own thinking to make evil into good to make wrong into right, and I am going to go kill Abner because my uncle David was too weak to do it. Sin makes you stupid. Makes me stupid. Pride, jealousy, and revenge had made Joab stupid. He thinks he can lure Abner back to the city of Hebron. Why is that emphasized in this passage? Why is the name of the city of Hebron emphasized in this passage? Because in Joshua 21, 13, the city of Hebrew, Hebron is called the city of refuge. What's the city of refuge? It's the place where all manslayers can go and they're protected by the command of God. Abner was a manslayer. He accidentally killed Asahel, Joab's brother. And Stupid Joab says, I'm going to lure you back into the very place where God's word and command says you're safe from people like me. 
family members full of hate. It was right in Hebron, emphasized by the passage, that Joab committed cold-blooded, calculated murder against Abner. It wasn't just violating Abner, though. In the city of Hebron, David's stronghold and location of his kingdom and throne, he was violating his uncle David, David, the king of Israel, the king that Joab supposedly fought for, brought spoil for, and vowed allegiance and loyalty to, yet he violated Abner, David. But this is the city of refuge, and God had said in the city of refuge, those who have accidentally killed someone are going to come under the wrath of that family. They're going to be in danger of the city of refuge. They will all, always, forever be safe. He violated God as well. Joab gave rise to a response in David which marks, not perfectly, but a Christ-like, greater son of David kind of mercy. David's response shows up in lament, gentleness, and justice. If you wrote down in the notes of your mind, Joab, pride, revenge, and, uh, and jealousy, for David, write down lament, gentleness, and justice. Look at verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people, so Abner has died. David hears about it. He calls all the people together. This is now not only Judah, this is Israel as well. This is an opportunity for him to lead into unity. He calls everyone together, including Joab, and he says in the presence of everyone to Joab, tear your clothes and put on your sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the buyer. Abner came and should have found safety and protection in the city of refuge called Hebron. Joab killed him right where he's supposed to be most safe. David says to the people, grieve and repent that such a thing could happen. Joab, join them. Now, we don't know whether Joab tore his clothes and repented or not. If he did, praise the Lord, doesn't seem like it. Throughout the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, doesn't it all seem like it? I wonder if there are Christians going year after year, decade after decade, Sunday service after Sunday service, Christian ministry after Christian ministry, holding deep resentments and hatred in their heart. All the while. Whether Joab did the act commanded by David or not, what was in Joab's heart, whether his outward acts showed it or not, was a hardness, you can see this, David even laments with a poem, verse 33, the king lamented after, before Abner saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? The answer, of course, is no, Abner wasn't a fool. Your hands were not bound. You weren't a criminal. You weren't an enemy of anyone. We didn't, we didn't fetter your feet, Abner. You were received as a brother. We ate with you. We made peace with you. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. In other words, whoever put you down, this is David in public singing this. Whoever put you down, Abner, that's the wicked person. You just look over at Joab's face and think, what is he thinking? Did he just call me wicked? <laughs> What's on Joab's face? Is he sorrowful? What have I done? What have I done? 
Is he stern, hardened, rock-like, brass forehead? Don't call me wicked. I did the right thing. Lament is what godly leaders do. Lament is that capacity to feel the gap between God's glorious will and the horrible way things are on the earth. Lament is in the gap. Any room for lament in your life? Any room for lament in this church or in this community? Any room for lament between the high glories of God and the way we're living our life? Is there any room for lament on the internet or in Washington or in California or in Minnesota or in France or in Israel or in Ukraine? Any room for lament? We have all the more reason to lament those who know much, to whom much is given, much is required. The more we know about God and His glory and the gospel, the more we are charged with David-like lament for the way sin has violated and grieved it so deeply. Look what happens in verse 35. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. David swore, saying, God, do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. This could have been a moment where they decided, you have a loose cannon for a nephew and he killed our Abner. We're not joining with you at all. But David, in God's wise mercy, gathered the people together, he wept before them, he fasted before them, and he said, let's gather ourselves together and grieve Abner's death. It was not my wish to kill him. That lament is what godly leaders do over the sins that occur before them. Look at gentleness. Verse 38, and the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. What does he mean by that? He means as king, I recognize that I'm upholding and executing the law of God. This is a city of refuge. Abner came here. I let him stay in peace. My own nephew killed Abner in the city of refuge. I have every legal right to sentence Joab to death. But I'm not going to sentence Joab to death. He killed a man who had been forgiven. I'm not going to do the same thing and kill him. I'm going to show mercy. This gentleness is the mercy of God. It's the same exact Hebrew word as shows up in Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up strife. David is king, and he's reflecting the very kindness, the very gentleness, the very sweetness and mercy of God. Do you think of gentleness as one of the most godly characteristics? You know that gentleness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's a surefire indicator of a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit that they always lead and walk and serve and speak in gentleness. I wonder if that convicts you as much as it does me. Paul said to the Thessalonians, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear 
to us. Gentleness is that quality that God and His Spirit enables you to have while you are being directly lied to, directly condemned, oppressed, attacked, vilified. That gentleness is the quality that allows you to stay centered and at peace and resting in the Lord while attacks rage all around you. It's a beautiful picture of the fruit of the Holy Spirit on display here in David as he leads into unity Israel and Judah and also offers mercy to his own nephew, guilty as Joab is. Finally, David is just. Look at how he ends. This is all in public. This is all after weeping and fasting and burying Abner. David is unafraid to speak the truth boldly. Being gentle does not mean you don't speak the truth with boldness. Verse 39, these men, the sons of Zeruiah, his sister, my own nephews, are more severe than I. And then he calls on the Yahweh, name of the Lord in covenant oath, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. God, I'm commending Joab, my nephew, in public over to you. You're his covenant Lord. You repay him for his wickedness. If there's anyone that you have a difficult time forgiving, put their name in there and say, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. The only danger is when you pray that word of Scripture, you might find yourself receiving it. You might find it applies to you. What protection do I have before the eyes of a holy God? I commend Joab, David says, over to the Lord. I commend Joab over. If he's wicked, God have mercy and, and, and repay him for his wickedness. But what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me when I find that there is sin that wells up within my own heart? And we know that's going to be David's experience before 2 Samuel is over. And it's our experience maybe before this service is over. We need someone desperately who will come in the power and the, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit sent from God, who will, who will absorb and take to himself all our curses for us so that we can come into his presence and pray and that we can, we can trust that, that he will heal our broken legs and that he will guard us from the sword and he will provide a meal for us and not leave us in poverty when we're begging for bread. We need someone who will come and take to themselves the great high-handed guilt that we have amassed for ourselves when we have taken right into the city of refuge the people's lives and we have used our own tongue to slay them with slander and gossip. Or when we have looked lustfully and in our hearts committed impure sin. Or when we have violated the king's word by saying, I know better. You can tell me all you want how to run my life. Jesus can try to do that. Your Bible reading, your preaching, and all your discipling, you can tell me how to run my life. But I actually know better. Who will spare us from such pride, such jealousy, and such revenge? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. David's greater son, 
came in fulfillment of David's prayer, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David's greater son came born to a virgin at just the fullness of time, and he was grown and lived a life of righteousness and perfection, obedience to the law, and he took that entire righteousness before the eyes of wicked evildoers who accused him falsely and lied about him and hung him upon the cross. All the while, God was laying on him the sins of us all, Joab's though that we be. See the gospel of Christ right here in the open Bible before you and let Christ stand forth from this word. He is your sin and he takes it from you in order that you might be his righteousness as you receive it from him. I was recently reading a book by a woman, a pastor's wife, who was talking about various observations of the gospel and in this sweet, delicate way, she says it almost in a cute family story, a beautiful picture of this gospel truth that's on display in infinite greatness through Christ. She was driving her minivan through the city, and she didn't think much of it, but a few days later, she got a notice in the mail with a picture of her driving her minivan and the license plate saying, you sped, and the camera caught your picture. She put the notice aside and forgot about it, planning to pay the minimal $20 fine and forgot all about it and finally she gets another notice a few weeks later and now it's like $75. You forgot to pay the fine. It's been bumped up. You're in trouble. Also, on your driver's license, there's a mark against you, a, a, a point on your driver's license. She decides to tell her husband for the first time and they sit down together and they go online and they're going to figure out a way to go ahead and pay this 75 and to see the details of it. So they both are going online together and they realize that the, they have to pay the $75. There's no wavering or changing that number. And they also realize something that at the moment the two are sitting at the computer together stuns them. And this is what she shares. She said, turns out that the vehicle registration was in my husband's name. She said they looked at each other and smiled, and her husband paid the debt. Our sin becomes Christ's sin. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. The great reformer, how can I not quote John Calvin, just before the October 31st, 506th anniversary of Martin Luther pounding the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, and John Luther, or rather Martin Luther and John Calvin and many other reformers calling for a return to this gospel that we all have benefited from for the last 500 years. Calvin says this, when a person examines his life before God's perfect holiness, he sees the strict condemnation all sin bears before God. Calvin goes on to say, then we see that the only safe haven is in the mercy of God, as manifested in Christ, in whom every part of our salvation is complete. As all mankind are in the sight of God, lost sinners, we hold that Christ is our only righteousness. Since by His obedience, He has wiped off our transgressions, by His sacrifice, appeased the divine anger, by His blood, washed away our stains, by His cross, borne our curse, and by His death made satisfaction for us. By this, a person can be reconciled to God that through faith or union with Christ Jesus alone. If you're feeling the weight 
of Joab's sin. And you're hearing the voices of the people weeping and singing laments and grief over the person your sin has killed. What look is on your face? Do you join them in repentance? Shocked at your ability to grieve over the very one you killed? Or are you hardened, stiffened, resistant? May the Lord right now give you a tenderness, a quietness, a gentleness before the Lord like David that says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pray. In these quiet moments right now, Lord, for children, young men and women, older men and women, I pray that you would move by your Spirit on us heavily and sweetly as a church and upon every individual to remind them what Joab seemed not to know, but what David embodied so well for us, pointing us to Christ, that you are gentle and kind. You forgive thousands upon thousands of sin to a thousand generations, meaning quit counting. Your forgiveness is infinite. You're slow to anger, and you abound in steadfast love and mercy. When your servant Paul was instructing the Romans, he said, Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the Lord, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What Joab forgot most in his hardness against Abner, was how much God loved him. Beloved, by your Spirit, Lord, just now, would you remind every person in this room of the infinite weight of your love for them. My great hunger and desire and ache is that this church would be moment by moment filled with the knowledge of God's love for us. Freeing us to come to you for mercy and forgiveness and repentance. Freeing us from the calcifying, cancerous effects of indwelling sin. Freeing us from needing to take justice into our own hands, but commending our sorrows over to you, the wise Lord of the universe, who will repay the evildoer. In the quietness of this moment and the song we're about to sing in response, Lord, would you move sweetly and powerfully and deeply on each heart. I pray it in Jesus' name for his honor, for our joy, for glory which redounds to the Father in all the fullness and sweetness of the near Holy Spirit. So it's in that name I pray. Amen.